The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. You look like you're feeling better. Jethro, COVID update, I tested negative this morning. Very excited about that. Although, I can't say I hated spending a week in bed (laughs) watching documentaries. Though, the last... uh few hours you've been able to come out into the shared space yes. and hang out with me and you have not stopped talking since i know so <laughs> yeah, i feel like yeah, maybe yeah. you've had a little pent up like oh god yes <laughs> It's been terrible. Uh, I just want to take a moment to brag about how great my wife is. Um, She spent the entire week doing everything. um, And on top of that, would pop her head in the door every few hours wanting to know if I needed more soup. And I did need more soup. Mm -hmm, And you provided me. It was like a bottomless bowl of soup. (laughs) And I appreciate you so much. You're so welcome. I'm just glad you don't have COVID because I could never in a million years keep up with your soup production. <laughs> but thank you for that. You're welcome. It's Thanksgiving week here in the United States. I can't find my little glass turkeys and it's making me very sad. Cat's collection of little glass turkeys. Now, you also had a collection of elephants for a while, but that really has nothing to do with... Um, with Thanksgiving, at least not in our country. Thanks for bringing them up, though. I'm sure they appreciate it. I still have them. They're just still packed. They're haunted. They're not haunted. Remember, she had this collection of uh, elephant figurines on a shelf in our bedroom, and they started moving. You'd come in the next day, and they would have moved, and Kat thought I was moving them just to mess with her head. I did, yes. And uh, I I swore, I said, no, it it wasn't me. The shelf was up above eye level, so I looked up on the top of the shelf, and there was dust on the shelf, and you could see where they were moving through the dust. Yeah, it was creepy. It was. So I would put them back, and the next day they would have moved again. Yeah. We noticed that it only happened when it was hot. (laughs) And then we deduced that the air conditioner in the window next to it was vibrating the elephants to the left. Yeah. I don't understand what this has to do with Thanksgiving. What I'm trying to say is I am so thankful that our apartment is not haunted by uh, elephants. (laughs) Anyway, since it is Thanksgiving week, uh, this topic is weird, but I think oddly appropriate. Oh, okay. This topic is about corpse medicine, um, also referred to as medicinal cannibalism. 
Like when we used to eat mummies? Well, yes, we've spoken about that to a lesser degree about how in uh, Victorian times they did grind up mummy remains and put them in various medicinal cures. And that qualifies as corpse medicine or medicinal cannibalism. But the practice goes much, much deeper than that. There's a book by a guy named Richard Sugg, and it's called Mummies, Cannibals and Vampires, The History of Corpse Medicine from the Renaissance to the Victorians. Over a period of several centuries, corpse medicine was very popular and it peaked in the 16th and 17th century. In Europe, those with means like royalty or priests or scientists, remedies containing human remains were used pretty regularly, but you had to be a person of means. Well, that's very classist. (laughs) (laughs) It's like if you're uh, rich, you're an eccentric, but if you're uh, poor, then you're crazy. If you're rich, uh, you're a person using corpse medicine. If you're poor, you're just a cannibal. Okay. (laughs) So these remedies contained everything from a corpse, from human bones to blood to fat. And they were used as remedies, things as simple as um, a headache to something more serious like epilepsy. They had a human body cure for that. You know, when you were just listing off the parts, it occurred to me that eating the meat of a human doesn't gross me out as much as the idea of drinking the blood of a human. Isn't that weird? Trigger warning then. Oh. The strange thing, and looking at it through 21st century eyes, the strange thing is that uh, at the time, nobody complained about it. It was socially accepted. Very few opposed this practice. It's ironic, too, that when you think that at this time, cannibalism had been discovered in newly explored parts of the Americas and was thought of as savagery. Right. Again, it's weird how they can separate... Oh, well, when you do it, it's ewy. But when I do it, Mm -hmm. it's cool and we'll have parties. Yep. In Europe, if if you ground it up and put it in medicine and you were rich, it was just fine. Right. So in this book, Sugg said, the question was not, should you eat human flesh? The question was, what sort of human flesh should you eat? Oh. Obviously, mummies were at the top of the list for a period of time. And Egyptian mummies, as we have mentioned, were ground up and put into tinctures and ointments. And it was thought to stop various things, like it was a popular cure for internal bleeding, for example. It was also very common and popular to use skulls, human skulls, as an ingredient during these days. Not just mummy skulls, but any skulls that they could find. Uh, This was whatever. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't matter. This was a time when grave robbing, of course, was, was fairly commonplace. Powdered skull was used to cure mostly head ailments. Mm. And that was the pattern. So a skull would cure your head ailment, a leg would cure your leg ailment? Yes. Okay. If there was something wrong with you somewhere on your body, oftentimes a cure would be made from the same body part that came from a corpse. Got it. Paracelsus, a 16th century Swiss physician and the, quote, father of toxicology, believed that to cure an ailment, you needed to treat it with something similar. And many of the corpse medicines that doctors used followed that advice. For example, to prevent tooth decay, someone would wear a tooth around their neck that came from a corpse, or they would take a corpse's tooth and touch it to the tooth that, uh, that what was bothering them. Okay. I'd hate to know what the cure for hemorrhoids was. Oh, no. (laughs) 
Uh, in the 17th century, a man named Thomas Willis was considered to be a pioneer in brain science. He came up with a cure for apoplexy or bleeding that was a combination of corpse skull and chocolate. Essentially, chocolate-covered skull. <laughs> Perfect stocking stuffer this holiday season. <laughs> Members of the royal family had their own ointments and tinctures. Uh, King Charles II of England used what was called the King's Drops. And these drops contained human skull ground up with alcohol. It was probably the alcohol that helped him. I would think so. And it wasn't just the skull itself that was used. Even things that came in contact with a human skull were used in medicine. Like a hat? <laughs> Hat medicine. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, well, maybe. I don't know for, for a fact. But an example would have been moss that had grown on a skull that was buried. That was actually a common cure for nosebleeds and epilepsy. Moss that had grown on a skull oh, in a crypt. Okay. Body fat was a popular body part used for medicinal purposes. Mostly externally, though. You, you didn't eat it necessarily. Okay. Rubbing fat into their skin was considered a gout remedy. Um, but what, so what if you've already got a bunch of fat? Like, is that why I don't have gout? <laughs> <laughs> I've got my own thanks. Yeah. In Germany in those days, doctors commonly prescribed uh, bandages soaked in human fat and placed on uh, open wounds. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. That makes sense. I would think that... I can see how that logic works much more than the moss that grew on your skull helps stop a nosebleed. Right. Yeah. No, it does make some sense. And when I was growing up, um, there was a, a home remedy. If you burned yourself, you put butter on it, which, yeah. which is the worst thing you could probably do. It's not a good idea. But it probably had the same principle or idea in mind. There were cures like liquor of hair. That was used for receding hairlines. You would grind hair up and put it in alcohol and rub it on your bald spot. Powdered hair was also taken orally. Mm. Yeah. Here's a weird one. If you developed cataracts in old age, a common cure was to rub human excrement in your eyes. Oh. Okay. Actually, it was, it was ground into a powder and then blown into your eye, but still, ooh, historically, this, of course, led to the medical condition known as shitty eyesight. <laughs> a German physician named Johann Schroeder in the 17th century wrote in a medical journal how to use the flesh of a cadaver when mummies weren't available. You had to essentially make your own mummy. Oh, goodness. Yeah. A DIY. Times are tough. Yeah, DIY YouTube video, how to make your own money. Qu a mummy. Quote, take the fresh unspotted cadaver of a redheaded man because in them the blood is thinner and the flesh more excellent, aged about 24, who has been executed and died a violent death. This is so specific. Yes. Let the corpse lie one day and night in the sun and moon, but the weather must be good. Then cut the flesh into pieces and sprinkle it with myrrh and just a, just a hint of aloe. I just have a quick question. Mm -hmm. So you're doing this in your home? Like, yeah, and, sure. 
And the, the idea that if a neighbor stopped by and saw you chopping up a human redheaded body is just cool. Totally normal for the oh, time. Okay. Totally normal. You then soak the, uh, you soak it in spirits of wine for several days and then hang it up for six to 10 hours and then soak it again in spirits of wine and then let the pieces dry in dry air in a shady spot. Okay. Thus, they will be similar to smoked meat and will not stink. Mm-hmm. But medicinal cannibalism goes back much further than the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th century. In fact, medicinal cannibalism is an ancient practice with its earliest documented cases of consuming blood, again from Sugg's book, came from ancient Rome. Pliny the Elder, a first century naturalist. Once again. We love the Pliny. He comes up so often. Described spectators at a gladiator fight descending on the wounded or slain gladiators to, quote, quaff the warm breathing blood from the man himself. And as they apply their mouths to the wound. <laughs> Oh, God. Draw forth his very life. So they sucked blood out of a dying man until he died. Yep. Or he could have been dead already. Wouldn't it be cool if they applied this practice today in modern sports? It would certainly make golf more exciting. Sorry, you have a love for golf, I know. But in the 16th, 17th, 18th century Europe, they preferred... Yeah, that was my problem with that. (laughs) But in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century Europe, they preferred body part to use in medicinal practices was the blood of executed criminals. Okay. The executioner was often paid money by people who wanted the blood of a beheaded criminal. They would catch it in a pail and take it with them. Right, yes. And those who could not afford to buy a pail full of human blood were known to just rush the, uh, the beheading site what do they call that? Not the gallows. What do they call that? Where you chop the chopping block or whatever? Sure. They would rush up and soak their handkerchiefs in the blood of the man or woman that had been executed. Now, since this week is Thanksgiving week here in the United States, I thought I'd close with a 1679 Franciscan apothecary recipe for blood jam. I'm sorry. I'll give you a second to get a pen. Blood jam. Okay. Fresh blood should be left out until it congeals into a sticky mass. Then you spread it out on a soft wood table and cut into thin slices, allowing the watery part to drip away. Once dried, the slices should be placed on a stove and stirred with a knife until it turns into a batter. Then transfer it into a bronze mortar. It should be pounded through a sieve of the finest silk into a glass jar. It can then be sealed and stored away for future use. It's then recommended that anyone using this jam should uh, top off their stores with freshly processed blood every spring. Oh, sure. Bon appetit. (laughs) There are some that say that corpse medicines still exist today. And we all know about it, but we don't think of it that way. It's in the form of organ transplants. And I guess technically... No. They're right. You're not consuming them, but you're putting body parts of corpses or other people inside you. Not the same. Yeah. My source information, Atlas Obscura, the Smithsonian, Richard Sugg's book, Mummies, Cannibals, and Vampires, The History of Corpse Medicine, From the Renaissance to the Victorians, and also Wikipedia. 
Wow. And the thing that blows my mind the most about this, and there were a lot of things, mm. um, was that in that day, people didn't even think it was weird or strange. It was just commonly accepted that sure. you would rub the fat of a corpse on a gaping flesh wound. What, uh, which thing do you think is less appealing? Human fat applied to your gaping flesh wound or pigeon butt applied to your open wound? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, yeah, that's a tough one. I think, given a choice, I would, uh, I would go with the shit powder in the eyes. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores and bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer and now that thing in the middle 
we utilize online food delivery pretty often. Oh, yeah. And have for a while. If we don't have to leave the house, we're not going to. And this is an experience that I feel like a lot of people who have ordered online have had. You order something specific. The shopper either messages you and says, this thing isn't available. Would you like this thing instead? Or they just substitute it without telling you. And we've had some pretty weird experiences with that. Yeah, we because we often will order vegetarian items, a lot of times they'll say, oh, this fake bacon isn't available. Would you like a ham? And, yeah, and right. we're like, no, 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 no. no. We are not alone in this, and this was uh, comments on a TikTok about this exact same experience that I just felt like we needed to share. Bad substitutions that shoppers have made. Number five, my shoppers are often great, but this one time I ordered one pound of green beans and they put a single bean in the produce bag and said nothing. Number four, one time I ordered Play-Doh and they replaced it with a lint roller and it still haunts me. Number three, my vegetarian wife requested fake sausage. They said that was out and substituted a frozen shepherd's pie with meat. Number two, they replaced my cucumbers with cucumber seeds. I don't have time to grocery shop and you think I have time to tend a garden? And number one, I ordered my son a toothbrush and it was replaced with an Asian pear. (laughs) It has taken me so long to catch up on messages and emails and uh, comments that we got during our trip. And I don't I don't know that I'm going to be able to respond to everyone because it has been overwhelming. Neville sent us this email. Hi, you fellas. I love your show. Last weekend found out an interesting fact. Mainland Australians always have claimed that Tasmanians have two heads. I was informed by this old deer that in the days before iodized salt, there was a prevalence of goiter in Tasmanians. This was due to the lack of iodine in the environment due to pure water and uh, frequent rain. When they had them removed, a scar was left. Mainland Aussies would say, can I see your scar where your second head was removed to prove that they were a genuine Tasmanian? Oh, my God. We're a weird mob down in Tassie. <laughs> I guess so. Jethro and Kat, I'll see you later. Nev from God's country, Tassie. Beth sent a message. Hi, Kat and JG. Just listened to your latest episode, 488, Cannibal Housing Options, about the red-haired giants found in Lovelock. Yes. It probably comes as no surprise that I am a listener... From Elko, Nevada. Elko is a couple hours from Lovelock, and Sarah Winnemucca is very much a part of our history. She was extremely smart and later became a teacher. My husband's friend Marshall went to the caves before they were no longer able to be seen and saw the bones for himself, and he took pictures of them, which my husband has. Yes, it's true and real, cat. Anyway, I guess I'm supposed to end this as everyone else does. Keep flying your freak flag, yeah. Beth and Chris. <laughs> I would love to see those photos. Yes, please send them along. Stephanie wrote us, Hello, Kat and Jethro. I'm still pretty new to the podcast. I'm up to somewhere around episode 250. Before I went to bed, I put on YouTube and put on one of your live shows. I think it was the first one. That would have been... Nashville? Nashville. Zanies in Nashville. I have... Auto captions turned on because my hearing isn't the best. 
I feel you. Since it's done by computer, sometimes the auto captions mess up. I captured this gem and thought you guys would appreciate it. And she sent a picture of us during a live show. And the auto caption says, and I guess I'm talking, it says, because no, you know that he does so, he hid behind it up chasing the cervix and such. <laughs> chasing the cervix. I Jeff, don't remember that story. <laughs> Jethro at your cervix. And we got a message from Jessica. Cat, I just teeth burped. What is happening? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You started a whole thing now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, man. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Now with 30% more tasty nutrients to help turn mealtime into fun time. This is The Box of Oddities. All right, my love, what you got besides a fine hiney? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I've been in my room for a week. <laughs> Sequestered. Hmm. Jules Verne wrote a book called Clovis Dardentor. The novel tells the story of two cousins traveling from France to Algeria with the purpose of enlisting. Along their travels, they meet Clovis Dardentor, a wealthy industrialist. The cousins come to a plan. They will find a way to save Clovis's life so that he will have to by law, adopt them. Apparently that was a thing. Huh. Am I going to read this book? Absolutely. Even though the last book that I read by Jules Verne made me very angry, but that was like eight years ago, and I think probably I should be over it by now. Which one was it? Mysterious Island. I hated it. You anyway, hated that? You hated that? I did. Uh. Anyway, Verne was inspired by and wrote this book because of Las Cuevas del Drach, The Caves of Drach, or... Dragon Caves. Hmm. One of the chapters lists the wonders of the island, Majorca, and the natural caves of Drach in the eyes of the traveler. Consider it the most beautiful in the world, with their legendary lakes, stalactite chapels, clear, fresh pools of water, their theater, their hall, fantastic names of you wish. But that deserves the wonder of these immense underground structures. Is that where we went? That's where we went. 
In Mallorca? Yeah. In Spain? Yes. That was a magical day. The Caves of Drach are in the municipality of Manacor, near the locality of Porto Cristo, located in the island of Mallorca, part of the Balearic Islands in Spain. Some historians place the first written mention of the caves in a message from Roger de Rinovic, the governor of the island, to the mayor of Manacor in 1338. He referred to the caves as Cova Vea, ancient cave. The name Drach does not appear until 1632 in a book entitled Historia del Reino de Mallorca, History of the Kingdom of Mallorca, by the chronicler Demetto. In 1880, a German officer and entomologist, Frederick Will, was invited to Mallorca and he drew the earliest known plan of the caves. But it wasn't until 1896 that Frenchman Edouard Alphand Martel, considered the father of modern spellology, which I didn't know was a thing. Remember that time we went spelunking? I do remember that, that was, time. It was actually before we were even a thing. It was one of the first things we ever did together. Yeah. Yeah. It was in your basement. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, he arrived in Majorca in September, and while exploring the caves, a large underground lake was discovered. E.A. Martel created a schematic plan of the caves with the new areas discovered. The cave extended nearly 2,400 meters and reached a height of 82 feet tall. It's cavernous. The large underground lake, Lake Martel, is regarded as one of the biggest underground lakes in the world. It's 117 meters long, 30 meters wide, and between 4 and 12 meters deep. I would also say that it is the clearest water I have ever seen in my life. It is incredible. I, I'm struggling right now just wanting to gush about how frigging cool this place was. Yeah, it was amazing. It was so amazing. The water is partly salty as the caves are connected to the sea. And in fact, the level of the water varies according to the swell and therefore according to the moon. So that's why it can be anywhere between 4 and 12 feet. And the color of the water tells you how deep it is. So if the water is green or appears green to you, the depth is around 3 meters. If it appears blue, the depth is at about 8 meters. And if it looks white, then the depth is only about 1 meter. I would say when we were there, it was a bluish green. Mm -hmm. So I would say between 3 and 8 and it was beautiful, and I'm going to share pictures, and I can't wait. Anyway, the caves were formed in carbonite rock between 11 and 5.3 million years ago in the Upper Miocene period. They are formed by minerals such as calcite and aragonite, which is easily dissolved by the rainwater seeping through the cracks and the porosity of the ground. These leaks lead to the formation of holes in the ground, which turn caverns and lakes as they increase in size into these chapels of stalactites and stalagmites. A chapel is a good way to describe it. You can't walk through that and not feel like you're in some kind of a holy place. It is borderline spiritual. It mm. was incredible. If it weren't for the 1,000 other people in the friggin' caves with us at the time... Coughing on us. I probably would have cried. Yeah. I cried because they were coughing on us. True. So, so stalactites are formed when the water slash minerals drip from the ceiling and create a downward formation. The stalagmites form from those drips of minerals and waters from the ground up. And that's why we saw many like pillars. 
That's where the they, thing. They connect. The formations have grown together over millions of years, forming a closed pillar. The fastest growing stalactites formed by a constant supply of slow dripping water, rich in calcium carbonate and carbon dioxide, can grow at about three millimeters per year. But the average stalactites and stalagmites grow between 0.2 and 1.6 millimeters a year. So consider the caves are 82 feet tall in some places, and there are these pillars that are just as tall, and how many millennia... It took. Yeah, exactly. The time that that space represents was overwhelming. Mm. The different shades on the walls and formations are due to minerals carried by the water running through the ground. And you do see a lot of different shading depending on the part of the cave that you're in. Inside the cave, the temperature is constant all year round, averaging between 18 and 20 degrees Celsius, which is so interesting that it stays within that range all year round. Mm. So it can be cold outside and you go into the caves and all of a sudden it's warm again. The conditions in the cave are super unique. There's a blind ant that lives in the caves that may well be endemic to the caves. Wow. We didn't see any. No. Well, they didn't see us either. Between 1922 and 1935, the Drach Caves were prepared for visits. Paths and stairs were laid out and a new entrance was opened. It takes about 45 minutes to climb down into the caves. That seems right, right? Yeah. About 45 minutes. About right. And then when you reach the lake, it is beautifully illuminated. And there you are invited to sit. And for about 10 minutes, a quartet of cellos, (laughs) harpsichord, and two violins appear on rowboats and play for you. Let's stop there for a moment. Uh Uh-huh. It was like a fever dream. It was magical we're sitting underground in this cave that is beautiful and it's beautifully lit Mm -hmm. and then all of the sudden you start hearing a quartet yeah and these rowboats appear out of the darkness filled with musicians playing bach it was almost hallucinogenic in nature (laughs) the shows the uh the concert if you will Mm -hmm. have been going on since 1935 Wow, those guys, their fingers must be really Stop tired. Yeah, what they do is they, they appear out of the darkness. There's mm-hmm. a couple of boats, and they're playing this beautiful Bach music. And then they, they go by the seating area, which is all a natural amphitheater. Yeah. They go off to the side in a lake that's lit that you can still see, and they, they turn around, and then they row back past you again and then disappear back into the darkness. It was incredible. And it was lit so beautifully that it just seemed like, I don't know, magical. I think fever dream is the best way for me to describe it. I also was uh, outraged because during the concert, like in the caves, you're allowed to take photos and everything. Mm -hmm. They're very clear that there's no problem with that. But during the concert itself, they request no photos, no videos. And so many people were still taking photos, had their friggin' flash on, and... Including one woman who was sitting two seats away from me, and guy came over and he was like, "No camera, no camera." And she and she smirks, and then as soon as he turned around, she slowly started to raise her camera up again. Like, why can't we just follow directions, guys? Anyway, sorry, uh, that was a bit of a rant. Uh, then, after the concert is over, you have the option to exit the caves via a boat trip across 
Lake Martell, or you can climb the stairs out. Now, we opted to climb out. Yes. And I would have, if it was just me, I would have taken the boats, but I know that we were kind of concerned about there being a time crunch, about getting back to our bus on time. Right. And um, I think also the boat led to some feelings of being trapped. Um, so... <laughs> yeah. I, I voted for the climbing out. Yeah, my, it was myself. two to one. Yeah. In the description, it says that uh, you need to be in pretty good shape to do this tour. Right. It says there's over 390 steps. And I'm thinking, 390 steps? I can walk that far. That's not hard. What they meant was the stairs on the climb out are 390 steps. Yeah. And it was rough for a lot of people. Yeah. But everyone made it out. As far as we know. <laughs> and then after we got out, we were greeted by, you know, a little gift shop and there was a food stand and a cart that had vegan hot dogs. And we got these vegan hot dogs and they had these little crispy onions on top and they were so good. Yeah. So that's why you should go to Mallorca. Listen, I'm not saying it's the reason you should go. I'm just saying don't dismiss how awesome those hot dogs were. Never would kind of want one now oh my gosh do you know how much i would pay for one of those hot dogs right now Ugh. forty dollars because that's i think how much we paid for it there you were in the bathroom i paid a dollar 75 <laughs> per hot dog everything is so cheap there i don't understand how even tourist is prices so inexpensive even the tourist prices we looked it up and it's something like living in barcelona is something like a hundred times cheaper than it is living in Orlando. It's <laughs> so, wild. Something like that, yeah. Anyway, it was magical and beautiful, and I am I cannot wait to go back and because there's so much that we missed and we didn't see. Anyway, Mallorca seems great. You're is gonna, all you're gonna post some pictures. I will definitely post some pictures. You guys aren't gonna believe it. It's just it's magical. It is okay. I got most of my information from Spain.info, ABC Mallorca, Hotel Pergola Mallorca, CuevasDelDrop.com, of course, and my own experience because I went there and I saw it with my eyeballs. And now we can write a portion of that off because you did the story. <laughs> no, I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to consult our tax attorney on that one. <laughs> Yeah, it was. It was uh, one of the highlights of our trip. No question about oh, that. for real. So as we mentioned, this Thursday is a holiday here in the United States. It's Thanksgiving. Charcuterie Day. It's the day that we watch old 80s movies and eat a, char a char charcuterie. We eat like cheese and crackers and drink mimosas. At least that's how we celebrate here in our household. And we've had some people ask if we will be dropping an episode on Thanksgiving. Because often we skip Thanksgiving. Yeah, because that's our regular drop day, Thursday. Right. This year we're doing something a little bit different, so I hope that you like it. As always, thanks for hanging out with us. You guys, we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast 
on Twitter at Box of Oddities and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.